This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 70. This week, we talked to Chris Dias and Eric Gamma about Visual Studio Code, Polyfill as a Service, and at some point, we'll talk about procrastination. This week, we have Chris Dias. He is a Microsoft Principal Program Manager on the VS Code team. And we also have Eric Gamma. He is a Microsoft Distinguished Engineer on the VS Code team. How's it going, guys? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, coming on the show. It's awesome that we get a two-for-one special. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and we're you know two different sides of the planet as well. We got uh, Switzerland and Redmond, which is pretty cool. So, uh, Carl, what's going on with you? Not a whole lot, but uh, we did get some awesome feedback this week from Naeem Sarfraz on Twitter. I believe that's uh, his pronunciation. And he said that the podcast from that conference was awesome. He liked the format and it worked well because each segment uh, was engaging and the speaker's passion shone through. Um, we really had a, a good time putting that together, too. And it really got us thinking that uh, anytime that Jason and I are both at the same conference, we're definitely going to want to try to uh, do something similar. So thanks for all the feedback. We got a lot of positive um, you know, comments about that. Yeah, a lot and, of people uh, love that episode. Yeah. And Naeem, uh, for his comment, won the Infragistics uh, Ultimate License this week. And if you want to, you can just mention us on Facebook, iTunes, Twitter, email, our website, wherever we accept comments. So just do that and you could win too. Perfect. Okay. So let's jump into the news. So we have Polyfill as a service. So I, I found this link this morning and I thought this kind of kind of interesting. So just, just to step back a bit, a polyfill is you know something, generally a JavaScript library that's used to fill in for a missing feature set for a browser. So if your browser doesn't you know handle, I don't know, let's just say, touch properly you could there's a there's a polyfill for that to give you that feature and it works for all sorts of things like promises mm-hmm. um you know all, all that kind of stuff what i thought was interesting about this is um you could make uh use this polyfills.io and it'll do some browser detection and understand everything that your browser is missing so if you're using ie8 it'll figure out all the stuff that ie 8s missing and provide you all the polyfills for it Oh, Which, I got you. Okay, so it actually detects it on the request of the script. Yeah, and and I think I think this is kind of interesting, but I think kind of misses the point too, because mm-hmm. I know traditionally polyfills, uh, how I've used them, um, you really do feature detection. So I need this feature, and then I'm going to detect for it, and if it's missing, then I'm going to provide the polyfill. To me, what this seems like the downside is is I might need like uh, maybe a half dozen potential polyfills. But a browser like IE8 could be missing, I don't know, 100 features. Do I yeah. really need to put, pull the polyfills down for all of those? Maybe not. But if you are doing some pretty cutting edge stuff where you do need all of that, this could be a solution for you. Yeah, it depends how you want to write your code. I mean, if you want if you want to just assume that everything is there and then have it be magically available to you. I mean, there's always a trade off right on the developer productivity versus, um, you know, I guess perfectionism here. And, and in this case, it's like, I just want to, I just want to be able to write against these features. And if they don't exist, you know, I guess the only people that are, that are, um, penalized are the older browsers, which I think is okay. I mean, it's better to be supported in a slow fashion than not be supported at all. So I'm guessing, you know, IE8 users would be, would be happy to be polyfilled. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I said, you know, depending upon what kind of application you're writing, this is a pretty novel solution to, uh, you know, getting your, your website up to date on those older browsers. 
Yeah, that's kind of cool. Okay, and then Firefox will adopt Chrome add-ons too. I saw this. This is crazy. So they're dropping support for their old add-in system. Um, and adding the Chrome style add- mm-hmm. add-ons. So, uh, you know, it seems like uh, in the add-on world, we're kind of coalescing around how Chrome is standardized um, on how to do that, mm-hmm. which just makes it kind of nice if, to, if you want a browser uh, add-on, but you're not using Chrome. Uh, pretty much you can use that just about anywhere once uh, it comes out in Firefox and Edge. Yeah, and as a developer, I mean, you can just create it one time and then push it to the two browsers, and then it's just a matter of testing. Um, I don't recall what was what was the messaging uh, for Edge. I don't remember what if if it was supposed to support Chrome add-ins or if it was just going to be easy to develop them. I it's so, I I can't remember exactly, but I think that you'll be able to use Chrome add-ons either as is or with minimal modifications. Okay, so that'll be awesome as a developer. And then Safari is probably the only odd man out. I don't know if it supports the the Chrome extensions. I don't think they like extensions. Period over there. Actually, Safari now, does, on at least on the Mac, does have um, extension okay. support. And there's actually a pretty big uh, extension ecosystem. So, right. yeah, I'm I, just not sure what they're written in. I know on the mobile side, there's none. So Right, right, right. Actually, in iOS 9, there will be um, support for ad blocking, which will be a huge... Uh, that's actually pretty big news. Uh, okay, and then this one really fascinates me. Google on Hub Review. So, this is... Um, they titled it, uh, Google's Smart Home Trojan Horse as a $200 Leap of Faith. And uh, what's interesting is hardware wise, I mean, this thing is basically the same router that I have in my house. It's a it's a TP link and they really don't hide the fact that it's a TP link. And they're I don't, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what what their what their you know, what their deal is here. They're trying to make it so that this thing is sort of a work of art and you put it in the middle of your house and uh, and it's supposed to solve all of your Wi-Fi problems. But um I don't know anybody who's looking at this. I don't, I'm not convinced that they have Wi-Fi problems to begin with. And if they do, I'm not convinced this will solve them. So I don't know what your take on well, this is, Carl. So I, I'm one of those people with Wi-Fi problems. Um, and, and, and this solves a few of them. One, you know, like you said, it does look nice. And I think, you know, as part of it is when you get those scary routers that have like the eight antennas on them, you don't really want to put them out in the middle of your dining room or whatever in the nice central location. And mm-hmm. this, this is supposed to help, uh, you know, make it a little bit more acceptable, uh, you know, sitting alongside everything else that you have. Yeah. Um, and as a result, you can get that, you know, potentially past your spouse into the central location where you really need it to hit all of the corners of your house. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's kind of cool, but, but they also, uh, one of the things is it says it has 13 antennas and 12 of them are used for communication. <laughs> and, and, that that's where I think it's kind of interesting because they're really optimizing those antennas on the fly all the time with software mm-hmm. and maybe doing some of that management that you would otherwise have to do manually and you definitely couldn't do on the fly. So it, if you really have a need in a certain direction, it can potentially boost that a little bit more um, to those antennas. And then it also says that it can, uh, using the 13th uh, antenna, it will uh, uh, detect what other Wi-Fi uh, networks are around you and adjust your channels uh, accordingly to optimize for that's a nice you know, feature what's available. And um, I was reading a different article. I can't remember where, but um, he tested it like during the middle of like uh, the MTV VMAs mm-hmm. the other night. And he said his download speed and he was supposed to get like, you know, 50 megabytes from uh, megabits from his provider. He was getting like three <laughs> with his standard router. Yeah. And he put this one on and it was getting close to 40. Okay. So he says whatever optimiz- optimizations are doing on his unofficial test, really, you know, he could see it. 
it wasn't minor. Yeah. Well, just adjusting the channel is a big deal. I mean, I, I'm using channel one and I was, I was the one that, uh, I, I sort of claim channel one in my neighborhood here and everybody else has to pick a different channel. <laughs> um, so mine works pretty good, but I don't have a lot of neighbors either. So Chris and Eric, do you guys, uh, have you guys looked at this thing and is, is there any interest in purchasing one of these? The Google, uh, on hub router. I don't know. I don't have any uh, dead spots in my house from the Wi-Fi perspective. Yeah, it looks a lot like the Amazon Echo. The it does, and everybody me. was thinking it had like a speaker and a mic in it, but it doesn't. Uh, I think it does have a speaker, but um, I, I think I think you're right. It's like it makes it much more uh, approachable to put it in, somewhere in the house other than a mm-hmm. closet uh, with 16 different antennas hanging off the back. Um, I mean, their whole goal is to get you on the internet. So the more that they can help with that, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So this might be good for like family members or something like yeah. that, but yeah, my router, I have it, I guess I have it optimized pretty, pretty optimally. And I, I don't really have any um, desire to get anything faster. I know for me though, the, the big thing was going up to AC, switching to an AC router, man, that's, I, I can't believe the difference in speed over N it's uh, it's pretty good. Obviously not on a phone or something like that, but for moving around any kind of big files, it's such a difference. Though I must say, since you mentioned family members, mm-hmm. so uh, I just noticed right now my son took the router out of my office into his room because he thinks he has better coverage for his gaming. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I'm definitely interested in this technology. Yeah, yeah, he should. I mean, he should just hardwire in if that's if that's the concern. Exactly. I have, <laughs> I think I have forty some devices on my network, and I have I think about twenty five, thirty of them wired. I basically wire anything that that you know can sit stationary, and that makes the wor- a world of difference. Yeah, that's what I did with my son's computer. Hardwire mm. wherever I can. Yep, absolutely. Okay, uh, let's see here. Apparent productivity fueled by procrastination. What is this, Carl? I haven't even looked at this. So so I thought this was a really uh, interesting technique. So a lot of us like to procrastinate, and I know I'm definitely one of them. But uh, this guy, he wrote a blog post about kind of using procrastination to his advantage. Is anybody else finding it funny that I didn't read the article? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know it was about this. Okay, keep going. And essentially what he's saying is it's not really procrastination if you don't want to do something, if you replace it with something else that's productive. And the example that he gives, let's just say you have like a to-do list Mm -hmm. and uh, you really don't want to do what's number one on the list. but your brain kind of sees it as a reward. Like when you all of a sudden do the number three thing on the list. Right. And, and and he said, it's totally valid to do because you're still getting something productive done. It's not like you're, you know, off playing angry birds or doing something like that. And he said a lot of times he'll even do, you know, when he gets to that, you know, like that number three task, he does a much better job than if it would have just been the next thing on his list because it is kind of seen to him as a reward. So I, th- I just thought that was a kind of interesting technique that I'm going to definitely try. Yeah, I think he's trying to justify not doing the most important task. <laughs> but I, w- I will say this. I mean, if I have 20 things on my task list and um, actually, I guess this falls into like the, the getting things done mentality. If, you know, w- which that that whole thing tells you if, if there's a task that takes less than five minutes, uh, just do it now. So if I have 20 items on there and, you know, 15 of them take five minutes uh, each, I will do all those first. Just, just because otherwise that list looks insurmountable. I want to still write them drown, down so that can strike them through, right? Yeah, that exactly. Content. That makes me feel good. Exactly. Yeah, and it's all about getting that, that reward. Okay, let's get to our guests because that's why we're here. Uh, we've actually, we actually had a couple people tell us that they wanted us to talk about Visual Studio Code. And just to give you guys some background, I have been using it for, I don't know, probably about four weeks 
and I use it more than any other editor now. So I've been using it more than uh, Visual Studio, you know, Visual Studio 2015. Part of that is just because it's it's so lightweight and I wanted to talk about that. Um, but I've I've just really been liking it. So I guess, first of all, great job on 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 creating this. It, I, I really like it. And uh, I've gotten a lot of people to switch over to it. And uh, that's so that's why we want to talk to you guys. So I guess first we should talk about background. So, you know, what is Visual Studio Code exactly? Okay, I can I can take that question. Yeah. Um, so the way that we sort of think about things, and and if you've seen one of Eric's presentations, he has a nice slide on this, where there's sort of two, two ends of the spectrum in developer tools. One end is the IDE space. Mm-hmm. So you've got Visual Studio and Eclipse and all the, the traditional IDEs. And the other end of the spectrum is um, the editor space. So Sublime, uh, Notepad++, Atom, Brackets, things like that. Mm-hmm. And for the, um, the longest time, Microsoft only had an IDE offering. Uh, but with Visual Studio Code, now we have an offering that fits into the uh, the editor space. So if you're an editor guy and you like the command line, you like um, you know sort of lightweight editing tools and something that starts up fast, now we have uh, an offering uh, for you. But it's not just another editor in that in that space. What we really try to do is say, hey, you know what? Let's let's sort of reimagine or rethink of what a modern code editor should be uh, today. And so we said, hey, let's have an editor, but let's take some of the, the key features that, that people love in, in IDEs and bring them to the editor space. And so you see the editor has um, the characteristics and the qualities of an editor, where it's lightweight, starts up fast, very keyboard-oriented, integrates with your existing tasks. You know, you've always got the terminal side-by-side side with it. But right out of the, I guess, quote box, um, you've got a great IntelliSense experience. Uh, you've got a great debugging experience, code navigation, understanding. And then integration with those uh, with task systems that are out there. So we try to like, look at the you know the awesome things of these IDEs and bring just those things down to the editor space, so that we've got a, a compelling offering there. Yeah, that fast startup I think is is absolutely key. Um, in my experience, it starts up. Uh, I think it's like on par with Sublime. It's um, faster than than Atom IO. Um, it's fast enough that it's really fast and. Um, um, I, a long time tip of that I, that I've always talked about on the show is to actually go through on your system, even if you use visual studio 2015, but change all your file associations over to a lightweight editor like this. So all of your like dot JSON files, um, you know, in any files like that, so that whenever you double click them in Explorer, you don't have like that. I always get like that splash screen of doom for the you know <laughs> big visual studio. And I'm like, no, because, you know, I, I know that it's that was the goal of us, <laughs> yeah. no splash screen. Once you have to show a splash screen, we failed. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point, because Visual Studio, I mean, it just takes it takes like any e- virtual in- eternity to open when you just want to look at a at a like a JSON file, for example. So the fact that Visual Studio code opens fast, like that alone, I think is is a bit of a game changer. <laughs> so so good job on the on the startup time. Um, and then I also I, I'm not I'm just gonna you know keep telling you guys that you did a great job, and then I'll I'll stop for, <laughs> for a second. But the um, the documentation that you have out there, I think, is also great. So you know, going through you know, I installed Visual Studio Code the first time, and usually I never read anything about it. And I you know, of course, I didn't. I just started using the product, and then I went back out there and, and I saw I saw a little bit more, and I started reading some of the documentation. I'm like this is pretty good, and like each time I've gone back there, I've always learned something new, and 
Um, it's just, it's extremely well-written the way that you mix the, the screenshots and the, uh, and the information. So, you know, I guess I want to say that, uh, I really like the documentation and I guess anybody who's interested in visual studio code should go out there and, and take a look at that because it's such a quick way to understand what it is, what it does, some of the advanced, advanced features, things like that. Just some inside scoop on that, mm-hmm. right? So um, we came out at Build, mm-hmm. and most of, at the Build conference, and most of the documentation happened the two days before, <laughs> and it was mostly written by the Dev guy, by the Devs developer. Really? On the team. Okay. But then, of course, we got great editing, right? So yeah. Of course, no. I guess that's why you learn something new. But why you read it? Why you like to read it? That's also the. the the editing work that all the team members have done. Right? Yeah, that, it's uh, just succinct and simple, and but it has yeah. everything you need in there. Yeah, I think we, we kind of try to take a different approach and more of a, hey, here's the walkthrough. Here's exactly what you need to know. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a reference guide. It's not a big table of, you know, property value pairs and here's how it all works uh, or it looks like it's but more it's like hey let's just kind of take you through the journey. You want to do JavaScript? You want to do Node? You want to do TypeScript? This is how you do it. Mm-hmm. Just keep it very succinct and direct. And also, this is what we like, right? This is what we like. So, like, we don't yeah. like to go give you highlights. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. Don't bore you. Our motto was we don't want to bore the reader, right? That's what you try to achieve. Right. Yeah. All right. So, the next thing is just is a question that I really want to clear up because, you know, I, I know a chunk of the answer to this, but uh, there's, there's a, a lot of people that I've heard believe that VS Code is either a fork or a rebranding of uh, GitHub's Atom Editor. And I I know that's not quite right, but I know that there are there is a little piece of that Atom project that you know helped build VS Code. So I was wondering if you could explain what those differences are and what the similarities may be between the two. Right. So Atom builds on top of a UI framework called Electron, previously called Atom Shell, which allows you to write desktop applications uh, using HTML5, CSS, JavaScript, all the good things. And that's what we share, right? That's what VS Code builds on. This is the foundational UI framework. But on top of that, Atom, they have their own editor infrastructure and uh, uh, workbench. And we have our own editor and workbench infrastructure built on top of that, right? So it shares a common UI framework, but on top of that, the editors are totally different, right? So Electron is kind of a a framework where you can kind of put... um, HTML and JavaScript web-based technologies running inside of a standard window. Yep. And also leveraging Node, right, as the, to give you APIs, Node APIs to reuse Node modules and so on. And if you look at our history, right, how we landed in this space, right, we started four years ago with work on online tools. And you found great scenarios where it makes sense, right, to do coding in the browser. But we also found some scenarios where for programming, you want to have it on the desktop. And for this reason, we said, actually, we also want to have an impact for the 7x24 coding experience, right? For this reason, we say, we not only, we moved the way we pivoted a little bit in our project journey to say, we want to also build a portable desktop app. And for that, Electron was a perfect fit, right? So there are some other small technologies used from from, from Atom, like the, the, the Squirrel update framework we use on the Mac, uh, from them because Electron also comes with some of this base infrastructure. Okay. Yeah. What I think is kind of neat about this too, I think it it gives some additional validity to using this type of architecture. I mean, it it got me interested in it. I've been out there reading about Electron, and it's like, okay, this is this is pretty neat. Being able to um, 
you know, you, you can already write cross-platform websites and being able to, you know, put those into an actual desktop application, I think is, uh, is pretty cool. So, so what do you add? It also the mix, right? So maybe talk about this later some more. Uh, when, you do, when you write a large application, like use JavaScript, what we did, we used, we added TypeScript to the mix, right? Mm -hmm. Which gave us optional typing and gave us great tooling opportunity. So that's kind of the foundation we have. And we use TypeScript, no Atom uses CoffeeScript. Mm -hmm. That's another difference. Yeah. And then this uses, this ultimately is taking a lot of the code that was on uh, Visual Studio Online, the what was known as the Monaco editor, right? And a lot of that code yes. came over for this? Yes, we, we still have a single source base for that, but now we start to really separate it because that it's more pay-as-you-go, mm -hmm. right? We don't want to drag in server terminology when you run locally on, on the desktop. But uh, lots of the validation, performance work, all the thing came from the Monaco work, right? And that we could carry over, mm -hmm. right? So we had good mileage with this Monaco editor for that reason, why we all said we want to bet on it, right? Mm -hmm. And we not just fork Atom. So we built on this proven technology. Okay. And it's, it's amazing too, taking, taking something like Monaco that ran in the web browser, and I just never used it much. And you guys, you know, put it into a desktop application And all of a sudden I find myself using it all the time. I think just because it's, you know, it's an icon there and it's, I can access my local files easily. And it, it made a big difference to me. There's another interesting uh, thing about the, the Monaco work. Uh, mm -hmm. Like we have the workbench and Eric sort of alluded to this. We have the workbench online, but there's the core editor that, that sits in the middle of that. And that editor is used, um, you know, not only in, in Visual Studio Code, but in a lot of other different places. So in the browser, you know, if you go to OneDrive and look at source code, or if you go to right. Visual Studio online, look at your source code, that's all the, the Monaco editor. Um, But even more interesting is uh, the F12 developer tools for Internet Explorer and, and Edge. Uh, the editor that's in there where you're browsing your source code is the same Monaco editor. Oh, and so, cool. Yeah, and so that work um, to go into that sort of host and ship on the millions of desktops uh, uh, really did a lot to drive the performance and the quality of the editor that we have at the core of uh, Visual Studio Code. Right. And then as that Monaco editor gets better, I mean, it's going to get better in all those places then, which is a nice side effect. Yep, exactly. So let's walk through the so some of the basic features in, in VS Code, because everybody's like, okay, well, this thing's a text editor. Like, why am I going to use this thing over, you know, Notepad, for example? Um, and some of the things for me, just some of the real basic things, and I want to hear what, what else you guys um, would like to add to this list. But for me, there's, you know, the side-by-side -side editing. So being able to open, you know, two files at one time or the same file twice uh, and see them side-by-side. Um, there's also a working file set, which, um, um, I'd like to hear more from you guys on that. And then also Git integration is, is built right in. Um, so I guess we could start with like the, the working files. So how, you know, how does that work? And it, it's sort of a mystery to me because it, it always shows me sort of recent files up there. Um, but you know, the list never gets too long. So how does that work? So, um, Some of the features that you talked about, some of them are sort of horizontal mm -hmm. across yeah. the product, and then there's there's sort of you know, almost vertical features if you think about it from a language perspective. So I think I think right right now what we can talk about is sort of the horizontal features that are uh, available to all languages as, as part of the editor. And so working files and side by side editing and things like that, those are kind of all sort of document management inside the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and this experience actually, if you look back over time, it it, it originates from being back up in the in the browser. Um, what we didn't want to have with Monaco um, 
uh, online is to have tabs basically within tabs. Your browser already has a set of tabs. Right. And so uh, we came up with a model where we don't have a set of tabs across the top, but you can edit multiple files side by side. So the original idea was, okay, you're going to edit your JavaScript, your HTML, and your CSS side by side. You want to be able to see all of them. And um, we kind of got into that model, and we, we, we liked it quite a bit. And so when we came down to the, the desktop, we kept that model where you're, you don't have a big row of tabs across the top. But there's still this need to sort of manage and see what, what files you're working with. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the working uh, set of files comes into play. And so whenever you edit a file or you double-click on a file in the Explorer, it'll get added to your working set. Basically, it's like the set of files that you're working with at this particular time. Mm-hmm. And then you can build up that list or that context. And in fact, you could close or collapse the Explorer pane and just work in that, in that section. And so you use that as sort of your, your pseudo set of tabs, but really it's about the set of files that you're working with at any particular time. And then you can open them up side by side and move them around back and forth um, and things like that. Yeah, it works. It works very well. Like I, I got used to it without even thinking about it. Now that's cool because now what we want to avoid is what we call the tab hell, right? So when you have tabs, <laughs> I'm always in tab even hell. <laughs> just, when you just navigate to a file, it's still a tab there, yep. right? So that's why we said we distinguish between navigation and working, mm-hmm. right? So only when you work on something, then we add to the working list. And if you say, I really want to work on that, then you double click it, right? Then you can also add it to the list. Okay. Right? So that's kind of the idea. But this came in later, very early. We only had autosave and fast navigation. Mm-hmm. But then people right. complained, like when we didn't have, when we had the option to turn off autosave, then we need a way to, to manage the dirty stuff, yeah. what you work on. So it was an evolution, right? But I think it was a nice evolution and shows, you know, as you work and use your product, that's how you get to that, right? This mm-hmm. wasn't that we designed it on paper. It was really day-to-day validation, okay. which is just true for the whole project, right? Yeah. We're aggressive dog fooders. Yeah, it, it just works without me thinking about it. I because I, I I didn't really understand what Voodoo was going on with the working files, but what ends up happening is I navigate around the the files, and then whenever I start editing one, yeah, it it gets added to that working files list, and then that is like sort of a pseudo tab system. But yeah, you're right, you don't get into tab hell like you normally would. Where in Visual Studio, I'm opening up you know 50 different tabs. So this is uh, this is pretty cool. Glad you like it. So what kind of languages and and project types can VS Code edit? So we have, um, so there is no notion of projects. It's a file and folder based environment. Um, and in some cases, if there is a project file in there, like if you have an ASP.NET uh, v5 application that has a uh, project.json, we'll recognize it um, and we'll try to open that up and set that context to it. Um, so it really tries to focus on files and folders, not projects and project systems. And so then, we think about it from a breadth perspective, a breadth of languages, and we think about it from a vertical perspective as sort of the depth of that language. And so we have support from a breadth perspective uh, across a wide range of, of languages. Um, you know, you throw a rock and you hit a language and there's a, a language service for it. It gives you syntax colorization and indentation and sort of the, the basic experience that you would expect from an editor um, straight out of the box. And then we have a set of files where um, we have a better experience. We, we actually call it good, better, best. And so we have good for a breadth set of files, file types. And then our better experience is for um, 
files like CSS or less or SAS, where we have a good, rich understanding of the, the contents of the file. So you can do things like um, go to definition on a variable in a less file or, or do a, you know, a rename, refactoring, things like that. And then we have our best experiences, which we have sort of the understanding across the entire folder structure or workspace, as we call it. And for that, it's um, TypeScript and JavaScript and uh, C-sharp for ASP.NET applications where, where there's an engine behind it. We have an AST. You can navigate across files and, and things like that. So at the peak of our, our sort of pyramid, we've got uh, TypeScript and uh, C-sharp and JavaScript. And then sort of in the middle, it's, it's these other webby languages like um, Less and SAS and CSS. And then at the bottom or the breadth, we have a large number of, of different files that you can open up and get uh, you know, great ex editing experiences for, but mm -hmm. contained to that sort of file. Yeah, I've noticed a, a great experience. See, this shows actually just wanna, this really shows our love for both editors and the IDEs. Right, what editor showed us, right? The, you want to support a rich set of languages, even if it's just with colorization. But it's very nice to have that. Mm -hmm. We love IDEs when they go deeper and give us IntelliSense and all this stuff, right? Yep. So we try to kind of cover both, right? Take the best out of both, but not miss what we love from IDEs, right? So that's kind of the, the mindset we have here. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second, and I want to talk about infragistics. Yeah, if you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from Infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, they have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. Charting, gauges, barcodes, it's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done so you can show this to the stakeholders and you know sell your ideas. Yeah, what I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you could try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos. So you can try it out for a month. Download the demos and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. Yeah, I haven't been missing too much. So if you look at like, um, you know, I, I do a lot of, um, I've been doing a lot of TypeScript, um, JavaScript, HTML, like those types of things. Like I get, I get all of the experience for, you know, going to the definition, like you mentioned, um, you know, I, I get that. And then also in IntelliSense, I'm getting awesome IntelliSense in here. So I'm not missing a whole lot from the, uh, from the IDE for the languages that I do things in. And obviously TypeScript and JavaScript can apply to the, the web browser or for uh, Node.js. Um, so, you know, for those uh, types of languages, it, it works really well. And then, like you mentioned, if I open a, a different type of file, that is just the the good experience, we'll call it. Um, let's see here, like a like a command line file. I'm actually getting 
color coding in there, you know, which is really all I'd expect from, from a, you know, from a batch file for a, like a DOS batch file. Um, so this seems, it seems like a really good mix to me. The other interesting thing is that, you know, for these great experiences that you're getting, um, uh, navigation, IntelliSense, you didn't have to do anything. Um, you didn't have to go and find a bunch of different extensions and, and all right. that. It kind of came with it just so that core rich experience. So delivering that, like I said, quote, out of the box um, without you having to do anything. So you get it, you install it, it takes a minute to install, and then you're up and running and, and, and productive immediately. So, you know, kind of, you know, leading question from that, um, you know, this isn't even a product that's at version 1.0 yet. Are there any other languages or, or other things that you want to support in, in that regard to move it from good to better or better to best? See, ideally, long term, we'd like to have the rich, the best experience for all languages, right? That's we don't. Mm -hmm. That's the division, right? Because I think that's what we love as developers. Mm -hmm. We love IntelliSense, right? So, but I think it's a more uh, gradual approach based on what scenarios you want to cover, right? And the scenarios we cover now is no development, client side development with, with all these frameworks you have, ASP.NET five, and we consider others, right? Mm -hmm. We definitely want to do more. Okay. Um, so I guess what scenario, scenarios do you see this not being ideal for? I mean, I, I can't imagine like everybody should just go drop, uh, you know, Visual Studio 2015 and, and be able to use this. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm able to, you know, I'm, I'm sort of doing something real specific. I think my scenarios tend to line up with what this is good for, but what scenarios is it not ideal for? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome at everything. Stop paying Microsoft for Visual Studio. No, but no. I think they're developers who just they live Sam.24 in Visual Studio, mm -hmm. right? They they're used to it and they love the the wizards they have and everything. Mm -hmm. And for that, Visual Studio is the best tool. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a couple right. times when I wanted to go file new project and it just doesn't exist in Visual Studio code. <laughs> Right, right. So some of that scaffolding, and I'm, you know, that like you mentioned earlier, I think your your IDE is like this. Uh, it's like a it's like a nuclear command station, you know, where you have like every every dial engage within within reach, and uh, you know that's that's good for running a nuclear power plant, but never not everybody does that. So so if, if you know heavy Visual Studio users really aren't the core audience, what what kind of people uh, should give uh, VS Code a try? Well, I think it goes back to. Um, we talked about earlier, if you're an IDE guy, then, you know, Visual Studio mm -hmm. is going to give you the, it's the cream of the crop editing tool or development tool out there. Uh, but if you're an editor guy um, and, uh, you know, you want something that sort of integrates with your workflow, but gives you a better experience right out of the box, um, then it's something that, you know, you should go and try. If you're doing Node, JavaScript, TypeScript development, it's going to be the best um, editor tool offering that's that's out there. Um, if you're doing cross-platform ASP.NET, then this is uh, this is definitely the tool to go um, and try. So I think it's it's more about sort of the type of, of developer you are versus whether or not you're a Visual Studio guy or or not, um, because it's it's really geared towards that 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 uh, that editor space where you've got the terminal next to you, you've got a set of tools, and it integrates in with that instead of having the full cockpit as we talked about with Visual Studio, where everything's sort of a wizard and you know wrapped up with nice UI, which is great. Um, it just depends on your preference and how you like to work. Okay. Hey, Chris, we should always have a negative, right? So it's we're not perfect. There is some some if if you are a hardcore Java developer, mm -hmm. right? Then 
we have coloring for for Java, and of course, Java developers they are spoiled by by IDEs which go much deeper, much richer. Okay. So that's definitely an area where right now we are at the basic level there. Right? Okay, that makes sense. And then and there's a large audience for. Yeah, and then what about on the on the the .NET side? So I know, I know you have IntelliSense, and I think that comes through the is it OmniSharp? It comes through the, the IntelliSense yep. is provided by that. Yeah. Um, so I haven't done anything .NET related. So how does that compare to Visual Studio? I mean, do you get the same from a from an editor standpoint? If we ignore all of the you know surrounding IDE features, do we get about the same editor experience? Well, the at this point in time, the editing experience inside Visual Studio is is richer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the OmniSharp integration uh, cross platform is is still very young, um, so it's still uh, evolving. But the the vision is that the core editing experience that you have inside Visual Studio or in VS Code uh, for managed code is is the same. Um, mm-hmm. But today, it's not it's not there yet. Um, so just on the implementation wise, right? Yeah. The the OmniShop is powered by Roslyn, and Roslyn powers Visual Studio. So the full power is there. Okay. And we currently uh, encode. No, we expose, of course, the franchise functions like IntelliSense, parameter hints. Uh, we have the light bulb. We have some uh, refactorings, rename, extract method through the light bulb. But yeah, it's not the full uh, Roslyn power yet when it look, comes to code actions and so on okay. exposed yet. I, I, the, the light bulb is really starting to turn on for me because I, I know, Chris, you said it two times now, but it, my light bulb takes a lot more power. Uh, <laughs> I, it, it really does seem like it is editor versus IDE is, is, is what it comes down to at the end of the day. Yep. I, I think I think you're you're dead on. Like everything starts to make sense in Visual Studio Code whenever you think of it from that perspective. Um, whenever you whenever you talk about the different features, and when we do talk about IntelliSense, that makes sense. Like it's ultimately they should be the same, um, and it's you know it is the it is the editor. So that's the, I, I get it now. Um, we are a much lower ceremony ID, but mm-hmm. you want to keep the things you love from the ID. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and I don't even I don't you know I, I guess we 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 sort of passed over it. I mean the fact that this thing runs. You know, it really does run everywhere. It's uh, on OS 10 and on Linux, which is, you know, obviously a huge difference over over Visual Studio. Um, so that's going to, you know, that helps it reach a, a wider audience as well. Um, one specific question I wanted to ask you, though, is is how this thing is so fast. I mean, it does start up within, on all my machines, it starts up within, I think, I want to say like one second. Um, so how did you guys get it so fast? <laughs> there is, there's just not one thing, right? There's just continuous engineering. Mm-hmm. And as Chris mentioned, you have 12 guys, mm-hmm. right? They have 12 team. And they used us, they compared it to native text editing components. So they gave us performance numbers that were aligned uh, with what you get from a native app. So some of the principles, well, many, many principles we have is whenever you can do something native, then you want to do native because then it's fast. Mm-hmm. And that's how we can compare to the native speed of a native written editor, which means we delegate as much as possible to the browser. Right, layout computation, all the things we we like to just say, let the browser do it, and not let's not us do it in in JavaScript. Right, mm-hmm. so that's how we get the editor speed, of course, up. And this is continuous engineering, right? That you do the uh, repaint in sync with the refresh rate. You have all this. There's lots of engineering work in there, and that's continuous doing. Like with everything you do in development, you have to do it continuously, right? And we really do continuous performance watching, continuous tuning. Um, there are some other ideas we have that we want to 
you want to keep it like that. Mm-hmm. See, our key topic right now is extensibility. And you want to have an extensibility infrastructure, which ensures that an extension cannot slow us down. And the way you want to do that is by have uh, leveraged the fact that you can have multiple processes, right? When you're on a desktop, something you couldn't have in the browser. And that you, for instance, run uh, the plugin code in a separate process so it doesn't impact like startup speed, right? The loading of the plugin code mm-hmm. takes on in a separate process. And also, if you look at the process at the infrastructure of code when it's running, it runs on multiple processes, right? This is what we think is a good way to get speed and also allows you to reuse uh, investments, right? So the C-sharp language service is implemented in C-sharp, leveraging, reusing Roslyn, mm-hmm. right? That's possible by going multi-process because in each process, you have the language of your choice and all we require is a protocol that we can talk to from our JavaScript to the more native implementation or the managed code implementation that you have. Okay. And then that lets you scale across cores even, which is uh, which is kind of a, a, a neat side effect of that. Yeah. And, and the reality is, I mean, I, I like that you guys benchmark it against a, a native app and not against, you know, a web application because... Even better, we got benchmarked against Yeah, exactly. They told us. That, so that's, that's great. That's, I love that because... You know, if this thing starts to slow down, like I'll drop it and like just about everybody will drop it. It just, it has to be fast. So great, great job on the speed. So I noticed that when I install this, I don't see this in program files. So where does it go and why? Okay. There is a transition in here, right? So um, I mentioned that with this Electron platform comes an installation framework. And this has the vision of... um, what is it? Zero, one-click install, right? Where the user doesn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. And that's why it installs. It currently installs into the user folder. Okay, and that not all Windows developers like that. And some of our enterprise customers, they said they, they want to see it in program files. So they want to have more flexibility, control where it's going. So we changed in- installations uh, in- installation story for the upcoming release so that the user can choose where it goes. And by default, it goes in program files. Okay, okay. That's interesting. Like, I didn't mind it being in the user's folder. I just noticed that, you know, it was... It wasn't in program files. And I, you know, I wanted to set my file associations and I, I it took me a little while to find it. Uh, of course, there is a also reality here, mm-hmm. right? So um, shorter path names help you when you want to not get into a long path okay. trouble. Yeah. So and um, program files is shorter than if I don't know what, what your name is, right? So it can be very long. And this also gives us some breathing breathing air by giving the user a choice and by putting it in program files and also uh, enterprise customers, right? They have more control over what goes in the program files and so on. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Chris, correct me if I said something that I shouldn't have said. You nailed it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, the command palette. What is this thing and when should I be using this? Ah, so remember I I had mentioned a little bit earlier, one of the characteristics of um, editors is very keyboard focused, right? Mm -hmm. There's no no wizards, there's no dialogues, tool windows, those things sort of don't exist. Um, And so the command palette is sort of the the heads up display or the one place that you can always go to to sort of control and navigate uh, the environment. And so, you know, Command-P on the Mac will open up the, the, uh, the command palette. You can um, 
browse for files, you can uh, outline files, you can run tasks, you can start debug sessions. Anything that you want to do in the environment should be available um, through that command palette. So you can keep your hands on the keyboard, and it's always sort of right in the middle of, of where you're looking in the tool. It's very fast to come up. Um, and we find that, that you know, the model works, works quite well. Um, especially for navigating files. You can get into a very, very nice uh, workflow with a couple of keyboard shortcuts to be able to jump around between the last few files that you've um, opened um, and navigate in between them and, and things like that. So it, it is the, the one-stop shop for controlling your uh, your environment and your experience. That is cool. I And also, right, so we have a desire to be lightweight, right? And we don't want to expose have long menus that start from the top of your screen to the bottom, right? And maybe then have even scroll, right? The command palette is a great uh, mechanism to expose and allow you that you can discover all the commands, but you don't have to stuff them all into menus, which will also be key to keep our light with appearance once you support extensibility, right? So we don't expect that you want to expose that anybody can add stuff to the edit menu. That's some of our yeah. principles you want to get, you know, controlled extensibility to preserve integrity, right? That's some, some buzzword. We use. Yeah, I'm sure we've all seen the screenshot where you have like half the screen filled with toolbars in your browser, right? <laughs> exactly. No, I'm just playing around with this. This is pretty slick for just switching between files as well. Like you mentioned, you know, control P and then I can just pick a different file in my uh, in my working set. So uh, control shift P, then see all the commands. Yeah. Then you can press question mark, then get the the outline, right? If you want to do a, a hash or the add symbol, whatever, right? So it's keyboard-centered, which is one of the things which editors are strong at that you want to preserve and which Sublime taught us, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a refinement of what Sublime introduced, right? To give prof proper credits here. Yep. So I was wondering um, if you could let us... Uh, Give us uh, an idea of some of the lesser known features. Uh, for example, I know last week Jason found autosave and he was really excited on IM when he found that. <laughs> autosave is This awesome. is depressing whenever we hear that, right? Because you want that the awesomeness is visible without us having to tell it. Yeah. Because you even made autosave in the file menu. We thought that's the most prominent spot you can get. Oh, it's funny. I didn't, even, because, I didn't even see that it was. Yeah, I see it's right yeah, there. Because you no. Know, as we started, we only had autosave and we loved it so much, right? That initially we thought, well, that's everybody will love it. And then Chris was reminding us not everybody wants autosave. And yeah, it's just a different work style. Mm -hmm. And it depends also on like the tool chain that you're working in. So if you've got a tool chain where you've got a heavy set of tasks that run on your machine uh, based on file watchers, you may not want autosave uh, on all the time. If you're doing something like uh, writing CSS and HTML, and you want to just be able to refresh the browser, having autosave on is 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 wonderful. Um, so you, you kind of have the option to work how you want to work. But like Eric said, we you know starting in the browser where you needed to have autosave, um, we found it to be a, a great way to, to sort of work. Mm -hmm. And then the other the other aspect, interesting aspect too, is you know if you have uh, a Git repository backing your your folder. Having autosave on is is nice too because you can always sort of roll back to whatever the, the state of the repository is based on the fact that there's um, a Git repo backing it. So you can always see your diffs. You can always see where you're where you've been. And if you want to roll back, you can um, cancel those changes. So, but you asked about features you don't know yet. Yep. So I, I had enough time to think uh, while. Chris was talking, so I want to talk a little bit that Chris can sync and tell the next one. 
I think control hover is pretty cool if in a TypeScript file, right? Just hold the control key and hover over symbol. You get a preview of the definition. If you want to go there, you just click on the link. Oh, that's that awesome. <laughs> that is really cool. I did, yeah. And I was sitting here, I have, you know, I have my TypeScript project open, so this is perfect. Yeah, you get, it looks like a, like a hyperlink, and then, yeah, you get a little pop-up, and it shows you the source. Yeah. My, uh, my favorite hidden features is uh, built-in support for Emmet. So if you go into an HTML file, blank HTML file, you put a bang, first character, and you hit tab, and it'll scaffold out the, the structure of your HTML file for you. And you can use it all over the place um, inside HTML, which is very, very cool. Okay. Is that through a snippet, or is that something else? See, Emmet is kind of a meta-system infrastructure. It's okay. actually a, a, an open-source project that's sort of called Zen Coding, and they uh, have a snippet description language if you want. Right? Okay. So you can say three times I want to have a, a list item and so on. Oh, okay, and, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see. And we map this to our snippet infrastructure, which allows them to uh, tab through all the placeholders, right? Okay. So that's how it's done. Very cool. Yeah, there's a lot of good hidden stuff in here. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to mention on that? Um, I, I go next. Uh, which one should I take? Um, yeah, what else? If you have a squiggle, mm -hmm. then you can also just press F8, and then you get the full error message in line. And if you keep pressing F8, you'll navigate between all of your different errors. Right. Oh, that's cool. I need some errors. <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that. That Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I put that in there, which gives me, like, now, now I have 99 errors, and I can see what all of them are. Okay, that's really cool. You guys just made me far more efficient, so it was definitely worth talking to you. <laughs> just saved me a ton of time. Uh, let's see, my next favorite hidden feature uh, is Markdown Preview. So if you've got a, yeah, I a love great, this one. great markdown editing experience and you can split the window in the upper mm -hmm. right-hand corner of the editor, you'll see a little icon that looks like a T. You click on that, it'll split it. And then you can click, click on the icon and see the preview. And as you're typing your, your um, markdown, you'll see the results right there. But even better about markdown is if you've got the, your own CSS that you want to render um, mm -hmm. the markdown with, you can set that CSS in your user preferences file, and we will render it using that CSS file. Very cool. Yeah, we. T I think it was my tip of the week uh, last week was the uh, was the markdown preview, and that was the only reason why I had Atom.io installed was for the markdown preview that they provided. So once you added in here, I was able to uninstall that from all my machines. So yeah, that was a, that was definitely a killer feature. Okay, so um, you know for for TypeScript and for for JavaScript. So right now, what I would you know just being honest about my workflow. Um, cause I'm resistant to change is I end up going into, you know, Chrome or IE, I hit F12 and I, I use that environment for, um, for debugging. So am I able to debug those from within visual studio code or, you know, what, what are the debugging capabilities of visual studio code? When should I be using that? So, um, the debugging, so we have a, a very interesting architecture for debugging in that there, um, or number we call them debug adapters. So there are backends that you can add into the, the debugging architecture, much mm -hmm. in the same way as that you can add in different languages. And so today we have support for uh, debugging Node applications, and we also have support for debugging um, C-sharp applications that are built and running on uh, Mono. Um, so from the scenarios that, that you're working on, if you've got a lot of client-side uh, JavaScript, then you can mm -hmm. today you can use the the browser tools to do the client-side debugging. And if you're doing server-side um, 
JavaScript with Node, then you can use VS Code to do uh, debugging of your server-side code. Okay, perfect, perfect. So you mentioned before that there's uh, infrastructure there for uh, plugins. So um, how can I write my own extension for VS Code? You can't right now, right? But that's what you work on. So we have an internal. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a plugin infrastructure, right? If you look into the source folder of uh, VS Code, you find a plugins folder, which shows no. We we actually have extracted functions like the TypeScript language service in a plugin, but we haven't exposed APIs to do so, and that's what our top priority is. What we currently work on. Okay. Right? The goal is you wanna. We think hackability, extensibility is important, but integrity uh, when it comes to appearance, integrity when it comes to performance is very important. So that's why we want to really get this right. And we don't mind if it takes a little bit longer, right? But we really explore different options there to keep these this goals we have. Okay, is that is that slated for 0.8 or or is it just, just some future version? So we work in, in monthly sprints. Oh, okay. Right? So uh, iterations that we work on. So um, we point eight is just what we finished uh, this week and which we'll have go through some preview with what we call the insiders. Mm -hmm. And then we start the next sprint. So uh, I would say um, it will not be in the next sprint, but shortly thereafter. Okay, so people don't have to wait too long for that. Okay. No, 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 no. Of course you understand. We, we don't want to wait too long. Mm -hmm. But also, know we want to first have some validation internal before we really oh, open absolutely. the doors, whatever. Yeah, I've been I've been very happy. I mean, every uh, on a regular basis, I open it up and it says, "Do you want to update?" and and the update process is completely pain, pain, painless. I just hit one button and it it restarts, and nice. and uh, all of a sudden I've gotten new features. So it's definitely seamless. Um, and also, that's our goal. Yeah. Right? So that was the cool when you had the browser, we had a service, and we could update. Oh it. yeah. Then, when we, yeah, when we, awesome. when we screwed up, we could update it. Yep. Right. They want to. We want to have. We want to be stress-free developers. Mm -hmm. So which means we know at some point we will screw up, mm -hmm. and we want to have an easy way to recover from that. That's why we invested so heavily that it's one button, as seamless as you describe it. So right. you make me happy when you describe it as it. Yep. Is. Yep. And then. Um, so I, you know, I'm kind of curious. Like, why is it only you know version 0.7, and what else can you tell us about the future of it? So um, the versioning story. So we started at 0 0.1. Mm -hmm. um, so we've only been really at it for uh, a few months here, um, and so we're just keeping the version number low uh, for right now until we exit uh, sort of our preview stage. And so if we think, if we kind of look out uh, over the I don't know, the foreseeable future, the next year or so. Um, the biggest thing that we're working on right now is our, our plug-in model, as Eric suggest, uh, said. Yeah. Um, it's the number one uh, user voice feedback that we got. And um, we, we, we knew even before we released it at um, Build that we needed to have uh, a plug-in model. And as Eric said, we wanted to be very deliberate about how we build it and roll it out. So that's sort of the big, big uh, focus that we have right now. Um, once we sort of get the the plug-in model uh, out and in people's hands, there's going to be some amount of iteration on it, uh, which is, you know, we'll take the feedback, we'll fix things and all that. Um, that has to happen before we can go 1.0. Um, another set of things that we'll, we'll need to do is um, sort of the abilities that make uh, a Microsoft product a Microsoft product. So uh, localization, uh, accessibility, um, all those things that we, the, the sort of quality bar that we need to, to hit, getting our support infrastructure in place and all that stuff has to happen before we go uh, 1.0. Um, and then, so that's sort of the, the core product itself. And then 
what I talked about earlier is we have these verticals mm-hmm. that we think about. And so a vertical for uh, a language or a platform. So today in the, in the, the tool, it's very focused on having uh, a great Node, JavaScript, TypeScript experience. And that's, that's sort of that vertical. We have support for ASP.NET v5. And we're, we're tracking along to the release uh, of that in the core CLR. Um, and so we'll continue to, to match those releases. And then we'll go and we'll pick additional verticals to go after um, to deliver these great end-to-end experiences for. Either we'll build them ourselves or uh, more uh, appealing or more likely is we'll partner with other groups to go and build those. What we really want to do is for a vertical, so if you're doing, you know, I don't know, PHP or something like that, you want to go partner with the people that, own no PHP because they're right. the ones that can provide the greatest experience or C++. Um, we want to partner internally with the C++ guys to have them sort of deliver that, that experience. And so we think about it from, from those perspectives. Let's get the, the core um, plugin model out there. At the same time, we continue to raise the bar on the, the quality that we've got for the, the core itself. And then we have to go and, and do all the, the core things we have to do as a Microsoft product, which the breadth uh, across the board, and then go and start to to tackle those verticals um, from a you know like numbers of usage perspective, right? What's what's the most used languages and runtimes out there, and let's go add great support for that. Right. Just be sure that we have this roadmap, but of course, what we do is we continuously listen. That's why we make, yeah. make these monthly drops available. We make new features available. We listen and improve them. Right. So it's it's an Give and take, right? Mm-hmm. We make some scan available, but we want to get feedback on it, and then we improve. So, in addition to the roadmap that Chris just uh, outlined. Okay. Very cool. Uh, anything else you guys wanted to mention? Uh, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to the dev tip of the week. So, uh, we both have one, Carl. So, what is yours, first of all? So, mine is a GitHub project by Nigel Sampson called Spectrum. And what Spectrum is, it's a library to manipulate colors in the .NET framework, uh, especially when you're dealing with RGB, HSL, and HSV color spaces. Um, you know, sometimes it's easier to, you know, work with a color if you want to uh, adjust a property of it. Um, like, you want to adjust lightness, you would use one of them, but, you know, it wouldn't make sense in the others. And this library um, just lets you convert between them really easily. Um, it also gets uh, really interesting too. He's got a, a spectrum.universal project. When you add that too, it, it gives you the uh, XAML converters. So just uh, in line in your XAML, you can do the shifting of colors. Oh, that's pretty cool. In line in the XAML too. So, you know, it, it's not a very huge library, but if you're dealing with colors and manipulating them in any way, shape or form, you at least want to check out what Nigel has done here because it's uh, just really well done. Yeah. Simple, but it looks effective. Definitely solved the problem. Yep. And then my tip of the week actually relates to VS Code. And actually, since I have uh, Chris and Eric here, they can tell me if uh, if this doesn't make any sense or if I'm completely crazy. Uh, so I noticed that on the, um, the I think it was uh, actually Jeff Atwood on CodingHorror.com recently. He was talking about programmer fonts, and that that got me to thinking, like, what is what is Visual Studio Code using? And I know, um, you know, I I. I checked it on there and because I know Visual Studio, uh, you know, like 2015 uses Consolas. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the on, on Windows, it's using Consolas and on the Mac, it's using Monaco. Is that correct? On the Mac, we just change it to use Menlo. Oh, so Menlo next, font. Okay. The next update, you will see uh, the Menlo font. Okay. And I believe you're right on Windows. It is Consolas. Yeah. Because my tip uh, on OS X is I've, I have some instructions on how you can switch it to Consolas. 
um, because there's some instructions for installing that font on OS 10, which is kind of interesting because Word actually has Consolas as a font, but it doesn't get installed on the system from what I can tell. Um, So we'll have a we'll have a link to this, but it shows you how to install it. And then you can go into VS Code and you go into your settings file and you tell it uh, you tell it to use the Consolas font and then it will actually match uh, Windows. So that's my tip of the week. And then, guys, we play we play this game. It's actually a kid's game, but, you know, we're all kids, right? Um, so, Chris, I'll have you do this first. What you got to do is you got to pick a number between one and four, and I'm going to ask you a question. Can I do a, a dev tip before Oh, that? yeah, definitely. Definitely. What do you got? Uh, so, one of the things that we just released out on GitHub is a Yeoman generator for VS Code for creating... Ah, yeah, um, I saw that. ...node and JavaScript... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, express node uh, applications in TypeScript and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So if you've got the Yeoman generator, um, then you can just install it by saying npm install-g uh, generator-code. And then from the okay. terminal, you can just type in yo code. It'll scaffold out an app that um, has a little bit of um, uh, extra special sauce in there, like the settings files are set up and the tasks and things like that, just so you get a, an even better experience uh, uh, in VS Code without having to do anything on your side. Very cool. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Okay, so pick a number between one and four. Do I say it out loud? Yes, you say it out loud. <laughs> you share the number with me, and then I will ask you a question that may or may not be silly. <laughs> three. Okay, three. Would you rather be forced to share <laughs> this is a game for kids? Would you rather be forced to share your bedroom with a huge reindeer, or be forced to share your bathroom with a man who has strange skin rashes? <laughs> is, there an op- is there an option C? <laughs> no, you have to pick one of the two options. Ah, uh, God! Either one of them is going to get me divorced. <laughs> I'm going to say I'd rather. Share the bathroom. I don't know. There's, there's no good answer. Maybe you could pick the reindeer and do it around Christmas. And then, you know, maybe yeah, there'll be some there context there. Okay, Eric, pick a number between one and four. A three still available? Sure. Yeah, I can. I have another card here. So would you okay. rather always feel like you almost have to sneeze or have everything that touches you tickle? I can handle sneezing very well, so I go for the sneeze. Okay. Well, you actually wouldn't sneeze, though. You feel like you almost have to sneeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, as long as you're cool with that. <laughs> we, we learn a lot through these questions. <laughs> okay, so, uh, Chris, let's start with you. Uh, where should people go to find more information about you if they want to follow you? Oh, about me? Yeah. Uh, if you want to follow me, uh, you can follow me at... <laughs> at Chris Dias on Twitter. Um, Boy, there's no good place for anything about me. I would say go to code.visualstudio.com. Okay. Very good. And Eric, where can people find you? Uh, Just on Twitter, Eric Gamma. Okay. In the the German spelling, right? Yep. Yeah, we'll have a link to all those. We'll have a link to those in the show notes so that everybody can find you guys. Right. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay. And you can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. So Chris and Eric, thank you again so much for coming on here. This was a great topic and I love the information we got out of you guys. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. 
Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 